I'm Chris Kresser, and this is Revolution Health Radio. Hey everyone, it's Chris Kresser. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Sarah Gottfried as our guest today. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The Hormone Cure and The Hormone Reset Diet, After graduating from Harvard Medical School and MIT, Dr. Gottfried completed a residency at the University of California at San Francisco. She's a board-certified gynecologist who teaches natural hormone balancing in her novel online program so that women can lose weight, detoxify, and slow down aging. Dr. Gottfried lives in Berkeley, California with her husband and two daughters. I met Sarah uh, a few years ago. I was on my book tour actually in Chicago and I got a text from her. Uh, I think she was there also on one of her book tours, and we had dinner and hit it off and became fast friends. And I have tremendous respect for Sarah and her work. She's one of the brightest practitioners that I know and just has a a really holistic and informed perspective on uh, functional medicine and nutrition and, of course, hormone balancing, which is an area that she has a a lot of expertise in. And, And in fact, if I have a question about hormones uh, or hormone balance or anything to do with testing or and diagnosis and treatment of hormone issues, I'm almost certainly going to ask Sarah about it. And, you know, uh, there, there aren't that many practitioners that I, that I have that kind of respect for and collaborate with on a regular basis. And Sarah's definitely one of them. So, I'm really excited to to do this episode. I've talked about hormones and hormone balancing uh, to some extent in the past, but we haven't really taken a deep dive, and I thought Sarah would be the perfect person to do that with. So let's let's jump in. This episode of Revolution Health Radio is brought to you by 144.me. 144 is a diet and lifestyle reset program I created to help you dial in the four pillars of health, nutrition, physical activity, sleep, and stress management. Whether you want to lose weight, boost your energy, treat a chronic health problem, or just maintain your current good health and extend your lifespan, these are the four areas you need to focus on before anything else. In the 14-4 program, I walk you through every step of the process, from cleaning out your pantry and shopping for the right foods, to recipe and meal plans, to video demos of workouts that you can do at home without any special equipment, to guided meditation and stress management programs, to daily sleep tips, to personalized recommendations for what to do after you finish the reset. 14.4 is a great option whether you're just getting started with this stuff or you've been on the path for a while. In fact, I do a 14.4 myself three or four times a year to hit the reset button and give myself a boost. To learn more about how 14.4 can help you achieve your health goals, head over to 14.4.me. Okay, now back to the show. Sarah, so happy we, fi- we finally made this happen. I can't believe we waited so long. Hey, Chris. So happy to be here. So let's kick things off by talking about the biggest mistakes that are made in the mainstream medicine model when it comes to addressing hormone imbalance. You know, typically a woman will, you know, go in to see her doctor and if she complains of any symptoms related to hormone balance, it seems to me that one of two things will happen. You know, this is an oversimplification, but, you know, one is nothing, nothing happens. There's, there's actually no investigation into hormone levels uh, as a possible cause of her 
issues or anything that could affect hormone levels directly. Uh, maybe two is, is an antidepressant gets prescribed. Mm -hmm. Or three, if, if the practitioner is, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, progressive than, than most, they might recommend hormone replacement, you know, uh, estrogen perhaps if the woman is in menopause or maybe estrogen and or progesterone if she's still menstruating. So what's wrong with, with that as a, <laughs> as a model? What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, I think, Chris, you and I have met a lot of mainstream hormonal refugees over the years. And so uh, I think there's many problems with the mainstream model. And I'll, I'll just rattle off a few of them and we can drill deeper if you want. First, I would say is there's a lack of regard for root cause, especially if you're seeing a primary care doctor who works by algorithm, by kind of rote algorithm. There's this knee-jerk quality to it. So if you're 17 and you've got acne, you end up with a prescription for a birth control pill. And there's no careful assessment of the control system that could be leading to the high androgens or the food intolerances or the gut issues that could be at the root of the acne. And you know, as you've described, if you're 25 and you've got painful periods, the pill yet again is considered the solution. And, you know, what I, what I think is a problem here is that women are getting put on synthetic hormones or in some cases bioidentical hormones for almost any issue well into their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And there's often a cost to it. You know, there's, there's long-term alterations to the control system for hormones, which I, I assume we're going to get into today. And I, I just... I see this lack of regard for root cause. So that's one. A second mistake is the financial motive. And this one is really troubling. You know, when you look at birth control pills and how they first started in the 1960s and maybe initially were thought to be an instrument of female empowerment, it's now this gigantic moneymaker for big pharma. And just with the birth control pills that are on patent, it makes uh, more than a billion dollars per year for pharmaceutical companies. And I, I have to say that I think the pill is the number one endocrinopathy mm -hmm. <laughs> for women, which is totally caused by the prescriber in the developed world. Iatrogenic problem. Iatrogenic, yeah. and absolutely. And, and the same is true for hormone therapy, for hormone replacement therapy for older women. You know, Premarin or conjugated equine estrogens synthesized from pregnant horses, that was the number one prescription in the U.S. for a long time. You know, even in 2002, when the Women's Health Initiative was published, it was the number one, number four prescription mm -hmm. in the U.S. And it's, we then had data from the Women's Health Initiative about how it's dangerous and provocative to the female body, leads to a greater risk of stroke, and together with synthetic progestin, increases a woman's risk of heart disease and breast cancer. And this then leads to a third mistake, which is a lack of rigorous evidence behind the mainstream approaches to hormone problems. And maybe even more insidious, the lack of awareness of the lack of evidence <laughs> by folks in mainstream medicine. And so, you know, Premarin was prescribed for 57 years before we finally had a randomized trial to show that it was 
a problem. And this is a shameful part of our past in American medicine. It's bizarre, really. It's it's these um, chemicals, including drugs, are innocent until proven guilty. You know, and, and that's off, obviously there's a process for um, determining the safety of a drug before it's introduced. But in in the cases of hormones, it seems like that process failed early on, at least. It certainly did, and you know, I think there's another issue here, maybe a little more subtle than a mistake, but a sociocultural problem. And that's and this one is kind of creepy. It's it's I think there's a patriarchal quality to how hormones are addressed. And I'll I'll mention this just briefly so we can get to some solutions. But you know, I was taught in my conventional training that you don't need to check a woman's hormones because they vary too much, with one exception, if she's trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And in that case, if she's having trouble getting pregnant, then you check everything. You do a thyroid panel. You do a day three estradiol. You look at her her FSH or day 21 progesterone, her androgens, her cortisol, her cortisol metabolites. That's a total double standard. So if she's trying to procreate, we can get involved. But if not, forget about it. If not, you're on your own or yeah. why don't you take this nice birth control pill? Yeah. So let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about that, what, what we might call post-birth control syndrome, because you, you alluded to it a couple of times that, you know, birth control is uh, the number one endocrinopathy and it causes a, a problem with our natural hormone regulation cycle. I just had a patient <clears throat> last week that fits into this category, so it's at the top of my mind, and I think it's always helpful to use these kinds of examples so that folks who are listening know what we're talking about, and it's not just theoretical. So this is a 23-year-old female, and she, you know, from the beginning of her uh, cycles, they were painful and difficult, and there was, you know, she had skin issues and a lot of problems associated with that. And so, of course, not surprisingly, she was uh, prescribed birth control and, and, you know, took it. And fast forward, you know, eight years later, she's a patient in my office with numerous complaints, and uh, I, I tested her hormones using both urine and blood and found that her, her total estrogens were high and with altered estrogen metabolism. So she was metabolizing estrogens down a, a pathway, proliferative pathway that can increase the risk of breast cancer. She had cortisol dysregulation, so inappropriate secretion of cortisol through the day and also high cortisol overall. Her androgens were high, so not only DHEA, but also etiocalanolone and androsterone and, and then testosterone and DHT. Her copper-zinc balance was totally out of whack, you know, out of the reference range, high copper and, and below the reference range, zinc, and then an, an iron deficiency and a number of other problems. And if you look at the scientific literature, pretty much everything that I just mentioned can be traced to birth control pills that, you know, but but she was never told that this could be a problem. Yeah, well, this is so troubling. And before we dive into this, is she now off the pill? Please yeah, tell me she's she, off she's the pill. She's been <laughs> off. She was, so she went off the pills like three or four months before seeing me and kind of in preparation, like knew that that would be the recommendation and did it and then wanted to see where her hormones were after being off the pill for a few months. And so, yes, yeah, she is off. Yeah, good. Well, I think this is a, it's a great example, unfortunately, of 
the endocrinopathy that can happen as well as micronutrient deficiencies. And I know you've talked about this with your listeners before, but we know, you know, just taking a step back, we know that the birth control pill makes the control system less flexible. So the control system for hormone regulation, you know, this, this feedback loop, which is uh, some people call it the HPA, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. I like to think of it a little more broadly as the HPATG, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal thyroid gonadal axis. Mm-hmm. So that system becomes a lot less flexible when you go on the birth control pill. There's numerous micronutrient deficiencies. And what troubles me is that I doubt this woman ever got full informed consent. No way. No way, right? And this is, you know, kind of that mistake that we were just talking about where I think so many prescribing health professionals aren't aware of these potential risks. Right. You know, they they don't know that 20 to 25% of people on the of women on the pill have vaginal dryness. Mm-hmm. And that's like the greatest irony ever, right? Like, especially if you go on the pill because you want to have more sex and you right. have vaginal dryness and you're just like, what's going on? And right. can, you know, it can shrink the clitoris up to 20%. It just has a number of effects that may not be completely reversed when you go off the pill. Like that should be part of the informed consent. There's a study from Claudia Posner where she looked at you know, one thing that happens when you go on the birth control pill is that it raises this intermediary sex hormone binding globulin. I think of it as a sponge that kind of soaks up your androgens. And that's one of the reasons why going on the pill can reduce your androgen levels and then reduce acne. But by the same token, when you stop the pill up to a year later, women still have elevated sex hormone binding globulin. So there's these persistent changes to the matrix of the body that really disturbed me. Yeah, and I've tested so many women now at various stages in that process. So, you know, people who've just gotten off birth control maybe a month ago, people who've been off it for two years but were taking it for 15 years and still have abnormal hormones and either oligomenorrhea or dysmenorrhea or amenorrhea, you know, they're, you know, they're on the different parts of the spectrum in terms of issues with the menstrual cycle and maybe still if they're trying to conceive and that's why they've come off the pill, they're not able to because their hormone system is so dysregulated. That's one of the saddest side effects seems insufficient to as a term for that, but that's one of the most devastating potential effects of long-term use of the birth control pill. Well, it's a tragedy. And you know, I've seen a number of patients, I, I don't know what the numerator and denominator are here because I just haven't seen good data on it, but I've seen at least 10 people over my lifetime of taking care of patients who have ovarian insufficiency. Like they just stop having their period and like they're they're in their 20s or 30s and they have the hormones of a menopausal woman and they want to make babies and they can't. In fact, I think I sent you one of these women recently. Yeah. And it's, it's just awful. It's totally awful. And it's very hard to reset the system. It's not quite as flexible as we would like it to be. No, uh, those are, you know, with those patients, I, I 
I'm definitely careful to set expectations up front because it's, it, it is possible in most cases we've been successful, but it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And it requires really digging into all of the various mechanisms that can affect hormone function and to really kick, you know, reset and kickstart normal hormone production again. So let's talk a little bit more now about, you know, some maybe, so, so that's the problem with the conventional medicine model one of the problems or some of the problems. Then there's like another world, which is this anti-aging medicine world where the kind of prevailing idea is that it's kind of like the, the, the deficiency replacement model, you know? So if, if yeah. the hormones are low, simple, just give hormones, you know, whether that's estrogen or progesterone or testosterone. And that's not even really necessarily the mainstream model. That's, that's more of kind of fits in the kind of quote, integrative anti-aging medicine model. So let's talk a little bit about the issues there. Oh, yes. Well, I, you know, this is, I, I sometimes call this the topping off model where you, mm-hmm. you're, right. you're taking the tank of all these different sex hormones and you're topping them off. And to me, this is a really unskillful way of working with the intelligence of the hormonal feedback system. It's a sledgehammer instead of a nudge. And I I find, you know, after taking care of patients for the past 25 years, a nudge works a lot better, (laughs) at least at the beginning and in the middle. And this more anti-aging school of thought is almost like spray and pray. You know, like right. let's top off every single hormone, pregnenolone, growth hormone, estrogen, progesterone. How about some testosterone and, oh, right. little DHEA too. I think when you do that, it's very hard to understand like how you're changing the feedback mechanisms. And there's a total lack of regard for evidence, long-term safety, and other consequences. So I want to be careful not to get totally binary <laughs> about mm-hmm you know, anti-aging is bad and functional medicine is the best approach. And I, I think the way to do that is to look at some of the evidence. So could we talk about Suzanne Summers? Sure. Sounds <laughs> fun. I don't think I've ever talked about Suzanne Summers on my podcast. So that will be, a, you know, it'll be a first. Good. Well, I think everyone can kind of visualize uh, Three's company, or if you can't visualize that, you've seen some of Suzanne's blockbuster books. And, you know, I've tracked her really carefully. I don't know her personally. I don't know, you know, kind of the backstory, but she started off in menopause with pretty hefty doses of what was then called hormone replacement therapy, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And, And she took them to deal with what she famously called the seven dwarfs of menopause, itchy, bitchy, sleepy, sweaty, bloaty, forgetful, all dried up. I think those are the seven. And that's kind of cute, but lo and behold, within a few years, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And I don't know if anyone was checking her estrogen metabolism, but it seems unlikely. Yeah. So she then left the care of the endocrinologist that she was seeing And she started the Wiley protocol, which is a series of different doses of estrogen and progesterone cream that you apply to your arms in order to mimic the hormone levels of a woman in her 20s. And when I first heard this concept, I was like, 
are you crazy? Like, why, why would you want to take a 50 or 60 or 70 year old woman and give her the hormones of someone in their 20s? Like, that makes no sense to me. But more important than that is there's no long-term randomized trials. The Wiley protocol gives you this whopping dose of estrogen that's about fourfold what the FDA has approved as a safe upper limit. Mm -hmm. And so it sets you up for estrogen dominance, for high estrogens relative to progesterone. And then maybe not surprisingly, Suzanne Summers was then diagnosed with endometrial cancer. So endometrial cancer is that surprising? No. Is it preventable? Probably. Endometrial cancer usually is. So what's wrong with giving people these massive doses of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and pellets, et cetera? I think the biggest problem is there's no long-term randomized trials showing that it's a good idea. And they're often prescribed by people with limited training, you know, like they did a weekend workshop and they're actually a emergency medicine physician or there's right. this there's kind of a blithe disregard of the skeptics you know just just fill up the hormonal tank and that will help you not get old before your time and i i just think there's a real danger here to the lack of robust data mhm yeah when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective which i often of course, do in these situations, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, as you pointed out, you know, that it's not like, you know, throughout most of human history, we, you know, women had the same hormone levels all the way throughout their lives, whether they were pre-menopause and menopause, but then there was something about the, you know, modern lifestyle that dropped women's hormone levels in menopause. And so that giving hormones is like getting back, getting us back to a natural state. It's totally artificial, you know, construct this idea that women, a menopausal woman's hormones should be the same as they are when she's, you know, prior to menopause. That That's just a, a notion that no one has ever really explained <laughs> to, you know, at least that I've seen that, that makes how that makes sense or why that would even be a good idea. Right. And I, I think there's many layers to it. I think some of it is valuing women as wombs and sort of saying, okay, let's replace her back to what she was like in her prime in her twenties. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked also about, you know, when you look at a woman's hormones, context is so important because often low estrogen, low progesterone, like there may not be any symptoms associated with that. It may right. not be a bad thing. In fact, it may be associated with greater health span. Mm -hmm. And so what's the innocent bystander versus a, a potentially pathological situation that we can address and improve quality of life and improve other outcomes that are important, you know, like breast cancer, heart disease, so on. Right. And as we've also, also discussed, even if the hormones are pathologically out of range, it doesn't necessarily follow that addressing the hormones directly is the best way to remedy that, which leads us into the next topic, which is what is the best way to approach hormone issues from a functional medicine perspective? Yes. Well, I want to riff on this with you because um, I think we have different approaches. There's a lot of similarity, but I think, you know, what, what I've learned to do over the years is to start with root cause analysis. I'm going to kind of reveal myself here as an engineer. <laughs> I feel mm -hmm. like 
you get the best results when you approach hormone issues like a medical detective and you really work through a particular sequence of modules. And, you know, I, you and I have talked about this as kind of a root and branch approach. And do you want to say anything about that? Because I, I love, I think that was your language. And I, I think that's so valuable here. Sure. So, you know, I, I'm, anyone who's been listening to this show for any length of time or following my blog will, will know this. But in functional medicine, we try to address the underlying cause of illness rather than just suppressing symptoms. And if you think of it as a tree, that would be, you know, looking at the roots of the problem. And when you do that, it's very often the case that the branches, which really kind of represent this, the manifestations of the underlying dysfunction, uh, and if you think of a tree that branches out in a number of different directions, you can have many different manifestations or symptoms, as we call them, of, of a fundamental cause that may seem like they're unrelated if you're only looking at the branches because, you know, one branch is going off in that direction, another branch is going off in the other direction, and, and, and they don't really look related. But if you trace them back to the roots, you see that they're related. So that's, that's one aspect of the root branch model. But the other is, and I think this is the one we were talking about, Sarah, is that Although it's true that the best approach long-term to, you know, to long-term healing is to address the underlying cause, it's also true that sometimes symptoms can be so problematic and difficult to live with that you have to address the branch at the same time as the root, just so that the patient can have the wherewithal to stick around and stay with the process long enough to, to deal with the root. For example, if a woman is having hot flashes you know, multiple times every hour and is you know soaking the bed at night because of this and not sleeping at all well yeah it's it's all well and good to deal with the long-term underlying causes but if that process is going to take months you better do something right away to help her to sleep and stop sweating as much yes yeah that's it's a great example because i i think you know often with hormonal symptoms women especially are suffering and it's like they can't take on some of the lifestyle redesign, you know, yeah. the changes to the diet. We want you to exercise this much and stop sitting so much. Like they can't take it on when they're exhausted and hot flashing constantly. So right. I totally agree with that. And what I talked about in my first book, the hormone cure is a really simple functional medicine approach. And we can talk about that. We can also get into some more details, but what I start with, which I think is probably uh, self-evident is with an initial assessment and really kind of understanding the symptoms, looking at all those branches and, and also getting a sense of the relative weight that the patient places on them. You know, that piece I think is especially important because it's so different from person to person. And I can give you some examples of that in a moment. But that's the piece that I think is often missing in the mainstream medical appointment of whatever it is, 7.5 minutes. You know, I used to yeah. work at a health maintenance organization where I was expected to see 30 to 40 patients a day. And like, you can't sit for an hour <laughs> and like learn about every branch and every root in 7.5 minutes. No. And then I do confirmatory testing. Um, and what I found over time is that I can predict most hormone levels 
just by looking and talking to somebody. Occasionally, I'll be surprised, such as with cortisol. You know, I think that's sort of a less predictable hormonal character. But for the most part, you can sort of predict what's happening hormonally and sort of what pattern somebody fits in. And then the approach that I talked about in the hormone cure is to start first with lifestyle redesign. And you talk about this a lot, you know, addressing the food, the movement, filling the micronutrient gaps. Most hormones take six weeks to reach a new steady state. So I'll often start people on these targeted lifestyle protocols for six weeks. And then we measure progress, both symptoms and also uh, laboratory tests. Step through two is herbal therapies. And I, you know, you've got a long experience with um, Chinese medicine. I have been studying Ayurveda for a long time. I just am really, I feel like this is the nudge that a lot of people need with some exceptions. And step three is bioidentical hormone therapy, but at the lowest dose and for the shortest duration, almost like small experiments, kind of Mm -hmm. these N of one experiments Mm -hmm. when the first two steps don't yield results. But going back to that woman who is miserable having hot flashes every hour, you know, often what I'll do is we'll start the lifestyle redesign. I know that the chance that herbal therapies are going to help her with having hot flashes once every hour is like so slim, you know, on the order of like 10 to 20%. (laughs) That is probably worthwhile to do some of the baseline testing and get her started on, you know, even a small dose of bioidentical hormone therapy just to kind of get her through that initial period of time. Yeah, another analogy I like to use for this is a raft that, you know, helps you get from one side of the river to the other. So it's really useful, but once you get to that other side of the river, you generally don't drag the raft around with you anymore, you know. And if we think of bioidentical hormone replacement as a raft, it can fulfill that kind of function. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I think another helpful part when you look at hormone issues from a functional perspective is this mnemonic that I learned at IFM. I mean, it's something I learned way before that, but they put it together in a way that I think is easy to remember. And I I don't know if you've heard of this, Chris, before, but they use the mnemonic PTSD, sort of an unfortunate mnemonic, but the, the PTSD stands for P, production, synthesis, and secretion of that particular hormone. T is transport or conversion, distribution, interaction with other hormones, you know, the crosstalk that happens with hormones. Mm -hmm. S is sensitivity to the hormone signal. So most people have heard of insulin resistance. And from you, they've heard about cortisol resistance, thyroid resistance. And then the D stands for detoxification, metabolism of the hormone, and then excretion of the hormone. So I think that's a helpful mnemonic to kind of think about some of those root causes that need to be addressed when you have hormone issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, as, as you say, my, my approach is, I think it's of course impossible to talk about hormone function without talking about all of the other body systems that affect hormone, the PTSD, you know, every aspect of hormone production and metabolism. And by that, I mean things like blood sugar regulation, other hormones like insulin and leptin, sensitivity, gut function, for sure, plays a big role. Um, If there's some kind of inflammatory gut condition, that's going to affect hormone balance. Toxins like heavy metal toxicity are now, um, I've been certainly spending a lot more time 
learning about biotoxins like mold and their potential effect. Uh, then we have liver you know, as part of the gastrointestinal system, but liver function, liver capacity and detox capacity, which obviously has a big impact on hormone balance and is something you have spent a lot of time addressing in your detox programs and in your books and, and your writing in general. I mean, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing, right? If a woman comes in and says, I've got a hormone issue, and you say, no, you don't. You have a gut, blood sugar, detox, heavy metal, potential mold, toxin, uh, gut brain axis issue. They're like, whoa, wait, what are you talking about? You know, I have a hormone issue. So it is like hormones kind of tip of the iceberg in that respect. But the good news is that the model for addressing hormones in the way that you and I are talking about is basically this, the model for addressing overall health, you know? So it's the the goal is improving your health and the hormones come along for the ride and naturally correct themselves when you restore homeostasis. Totally. Yeah, totally agree with that. And I, I think there's kind of a, a cadence, you know, sort of a right pace with, uncovering, unraveling the reasons why someone has a hormone imbalance. And just as you described, when you've got someone who's sitting in front of you, who's a bit of a cortisol junkie, like I used to be, and they have high cortisol and you're like rattling off all these potential root causes, you know, they want to go running from the room. (laughs) Just like, ah, and it's, you know, the good news is that when you've got this integrated functional approach, people feel better. And, you know, often it's in that first six weeks or the first 12 weeks that people get better. And if they don't, then you start looking for the zebras. You know, you start doing the ERMI, the test for mold. You start Mm -hmm. looking at heavy metals. Or in your case, you get referred people who are pretty complex. And so I think you front load more of the testing. Yeah, But there's a way to do it that is more, you know, kind of adjusted to the individual and how much they can take on. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things I know that you've gotten really interested in, um, I, I think, can I spill the beans here about the, the first <laughs> yes. book? Yeah. Your, your next book that you're working on is really focused on this, uh, is the role of genetics in longevity and health in general and, and epigenetics. And so I'm curious what your, you know, where that research has led in terms of the hormone uh, regulation specifically, you know, are there genes that you're looking at that you think play a pretty big role in affecting predisposition to hormone imbalance, or is it more of an epigenetic and environmental exposome related influence? You know, what's the relative contribution of all of those things in your mind? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I'm totally immersed in this data. It's so much fun. And I feel like we're at this tipping point with our understanding of genetics and what can be done, you know, kind of the promise, the leverage of epigenetics. But the amount of data on the topic is increasing exponentially. So mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's a challenge to keep track of it. But to answer your question, maybe I'll start with your second question first. I've heard you talk because I think I've listened obsessively to every single podcast you've had, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, My husband like put me on a limit for how many I've listened to. um, I'll be speaking to him about that. Yeah, please talk to him. Um, You know, you've talked about this point that 
genes load the gun and epigenetics uh, pulls the trigger. And I, I think that's a really valuable way to look at it. I wish we had a good ratio that I could just rattle off when it comes to hormone balance. You know, I yeah. think when we look at degenerative disease or kind of the disease of aging, we think the the number is somewhere around 10% genetics, 90% exposure, exposome, epigenetics. And I don't know if that same ratio applies to hormones. My instinct is probably that it's more like 2080 or 3070, something like that. And I'll talk about a couple of, of genes that have my my curiosity right now. Um, frankly, there's about 50 of them, but I'll just give you, <laughs> maybe we can start with three. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll open the kimono on myself first because um, it's the genome that I know the best. Mm -hmm. And the first one is CYP1B1. And, you know, all these genes kind of sound like license plates. They're, right. They have ridiculous names and ridiculous abbreviations. But this is a a SNP that um, a single nucleotide polymorphism, and I am homozygous, which I think of as kind of a red light. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got the bad version of this gene. My genotype is CG, and that means I'm at an increased risk with my particular SNP for pro-carcinogenic activation of my estrogens. Mm -hmm. So if you look at my estrogen pathway, you talked about this a little bit with some of the with the patient that you described. Yeah. If you look at how estrogen is used in my body, I make too much of 4-hydroxyestrone. Mm -hmm. And then just to add insult to injury, I don't methylate it to a safer estrogen. Like I don't take that bad estrogen and then make it safer, which right. is 4-methoxyestrone. So I have to track my estrogen metabolism especially now that I'm in perimenopause and it's, it's, you know, something that I learned about when I first started doing genotype testing related to hormone balance. And I started that in about 2006 with Genova. They've got a couple of panels that I found to be worthwhile. And so it just means that I have to be super attentive to how much 4-hydroxyestrone I'm making, and then I need to sort of nudge my body along with how much I methylate that to make it safer. And then speaking of methylation, I'm a lousy methylator. So if you just look at MTHFR, for me, I'm heterozygous for MTHFR. So I have about a 35% reduced MTHFR enzyme activity. And so that means I need to take certain supplements that kind of help me. And then I track about once a quarter my estrogen metabolism. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then a third one I'll mention, this is maybe a little less complicated. I have two genes, GSTT1, GSTM1, and these make me low in vitamin C. And the interesting connection here is that this is a micronutrient. Vitamin C is a micronutrient that is really important for your progesterone levels. And so I have a tendency to not make enough progesterone. And it's kind of related to being crazy stress girl in my 30s because I was monomaniacally making cortisol. It's kind of how I survived through my medical training. And my high cortisol would then block my progesterone receptors. And then my poor body like could hardly make any progesterone because I right. didn't have enough vitamin C. And we know that taking vitamin C can raise your progesterone level. 
-hmm. So that's just an example of three kind of sets of genes that I've been paying attention to. And, and you know, it's, I, a, it's a really good example because it's not, it's a, everything that you mentioned is a combination of uh, your genetic predisposition and then the particular lifestyle circumstances that you had. It's not like it's set right. in stone that you have these genes. You're for sure going to have low progesterone. You're for sure going to have, you know, issues, all the issues that you mentioned. But if you combine that genetic predisposition with the modern lifestyle, then that's why, you know, you get these issues, whereas somebody else gets different issues. And I think it's really important for people to understand that we're not talking about you know, single gene diseases here, like that, where if you have a genetic mutation, you for sure are going to have a disease. We're talking about uh, patterns and probabilities. That's right. Yeah, that's a really important point. You know, one other, since we've been talking about birth control pills, can we talk a little bit about the genetics of the androgen receptor? That's kind yeah, of a fun sure. story. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know, the next 10 to 20 years, we're really going to change the way that we approach hormone balancing. And I, I hope that we get at some point to a place where you go see your clinician, you pull out a card from your wallet that has your genome on it, and we can say to that person, you know what, a birth control pill is not a good idea for you because of these three SNPs. And in the meantime, it's also kind of a spray and pray approach, especially when it comes to birth control pills. And you know, when I talk about birth control pills as being the number one endocrinopathy, what I see is that women and men have differences in their androgen receptor. And I have a friend named Andrew Goldstein, who's a gynecologist back east, and he's got a great analogy here. He talks about how some women have the Hummer version, the Hummer version of the androgen receptor. And so when they go on the birth control pill, and their tank of testosterone goes down because their sex hormone binding globulin goes up and it's like a sponge soaking up their free testosterone, they have all kinds of symptoms. So they're part of that 25% that has vaginal dryness, maybe decreased arousal, maybe even pain. And there's other people who have the Prius type of androgen receptor and they can go for miles with a low tank of testosterone. So mm -hmm. they don't notice symptoms. They sort of don't know what all the fuss is about. You know, if you're one of those people with a Prius androgen receptor and you're listening to us right now, you may be thinking, why are they talking endlessly about the birth control pill? I went on it and I had no problems. Yeah. So there's these different phenotypes that people have when it comes to hormone receptors, and it can really make a difference in how you respond, especially to synthetic hormones. Well, yeah. And the, I mean, it's what's really interesting too is this, this subject for another podcast entirely, but the whole with cortisol and the whole like three stage model of adrenal fatigue, which was never really based in any solid, you know, peer reviewed evidence. One of the main things that that completely ignores is the role of cortisol receptors. And what some of the more recent research suggests that a lot of the issues that we see with cortisol are not related to the overall production of cortisol being high or low, or even necessarily a disruption of the diurnal rhythm of cortisol, but instead with cortisol receptors on cells be losing their sensitivity. So just like we can have insulin resistance and leptin resistance, we have cortisol resistance. And what you're saying is some people 
may have relative resistance to testosterone or other androgens versus uh, you know another person who has more sensitive receptors and that is something that can make a huge difference but is is really not being looked for at all by anyone in any approach that's right yeah i'm glad you raised this point about hans selly and the stages of adrenal dysregulation because i i think that it was way oversimplified and it, mm-hmm. it, I think it's confusing for a lot of people because they just think they need to, you know, crank up or down their cortisol levels when there's this much more sophisticated biochemistry happening yeah. in the background. And, you know, I, I think we're, we're still pretty early in understanding hormone receptors and sensitivity. You know, there's some data, for instance, on uh, the oxytocin receptor and, Having a certain uh, SNP for the oxytocin receptor makes you more likely to have autism. I, I just think it's a very interesting topic. And there's some genes like the serotonin, the short serotonin transporter gene that make you more likely to have cortisol resistance. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's the direction that we're heading, where you kind of have a sense of, oh, I am a short serotonin transporter. I need to like manage my cortisol 10 times better than my spouse, for instance. Yeah, you can't just look at someone else and say, see, look what they're doing and I can do that too. It doesn't work that. Yeah, and of course, a lot of people figure this stuff out without even knowing their genome. You know, they, they just, if they're paying attention and they observe their reactions to, you know, various stimuli and circumstances, they determine that, this stuff on their own. So, so like for me, I know I've known for years that I'm relatively sensitive to caffeine compared to other people. Like I, I would just look at people who would, you know, order an espresso after dinner and just think what in like, what, how is that, you know, how is that even possible? Like if I did that, I would be awake the entire night, you know, like wide awake the entire night. And I just couldn't even comprehend that that person was like the same species as me because it it was so bizarrely different. And then recently I had you take a look at, at my genes. And of course there is a reason that I'm sensitive to caffeine like that. I'm a slow metabolizer of it. So, I mean, I, again, just, this is all fascinating and I really do look forward to the time where we have that kind of information and I want to remind people that you can learn a lot through observation and self-awareness uh, in, until we come to that point in time where we have that level of knowledge and understanding. Yeah, I mean, such a good point. I, 51% of people in the U.S. are slow metabolizers of caffeine. You and I share that particular <laughs> SNP. And so chances are, you right. know, at least half of you have this. And it's not just clearing caffeine, it's also clearing stress. And maybe it's part of the reason why you and I have contemplative practices that we've developed along with our professional work. Yeah. Well, here's a, I mean, we're, we're getting off on a little tangent here, which is permitted on, on my podcast, <laughs> even though people, even though people do frequently complain about it. <laughs> it's too bad. That's just what happens. Well, you're, you're just trying to work with your genome. <laughs> right. So you said 51% are slow metabolizers. That's um, perhaps especially disturbing in light of the recent study the caffeine study. I don't, did you see that about the effects of caffeine on circadian rhythm uh, when it's consumed in the afternoon or evening? Mm. I'll send it to you if you, if you don't have it, but yeah, send it to me. So what in the intro 
they what they said was that blew me away. I mean, I guess I I had some idea, but ninety percent of individuals consume caffeine in the afternoon between twelve and six p.m. and sixty sixty nine percent of people consume caffeine between the hours of six p.m. and twelve a.m. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, we we wonder why we have a sleep epidemic. This is crazy. Fifty one percent are slow metabolizers of caffeine, but sixty nine percent are unable to metabolize that caffeine. And so, and of course, the study found exactly what you would expect it to find, which is that it, it, overall, consuming caffeine that late at night does adversely affect sleep, but the effects were varied. And they didn't get yes. into why they varied, but we know why they varied, because of the differences in caffeine metabolism that are genetically determined. Exactly. And I, you know, I think if you look at the literature on caffeine this one certainly makes sense and kind of adds to the story. Very few of the studies looking at caffeine have broken people into categories based on their SNPs. But when you do that, when you look at the people who are the slow metabolizers, they're the ones who have the increased heart disease. They're the ones who have to keep their caffeine less than 200 milligrams a day. And certainly before 6 p.m. And in my case, like before 7 a.m. Right, right. So it's... uh, you know, I think that's what we're going to be seeing in the literature is more of this, okay, let's take this population-based model and now break people into categories according to their SNPs so that we can be a little smarter about how we approach this. Right. Okay, so we're coming to an end here. I just, you know, want to kind of summarize and, and say that, again, the, the, the bad news is we can't say here, here are, you know, three simple steps that every person can take to improve their hormone balance. I mean, we can, we can get close to that. And I'm, I'm going to ask you that question actually in a second, <laughs> but I think the overarching uh, message here is that hormone balance is largely determined by many other aspects that affect our health, like our diet and our metabolism and our gut function and our liver detox capacity and so to really address hormones from a holistic or functional perspective, that's what you have to be looking at. So having said that, what, mm-hmm. because I'm talking to the author of the best-selling Hormone Cure, uh, which has helped a lot of women recover their hormone balance, what are you know, maybe three things that most women, no matter what the root cause of their hormone problem is, would benefit from in terms of helping to regulate hormones? Well, I have to start with cortisol because I I feel like, I mean, you've heard me joke before that cortisol is like the bad boyfriend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's, There's a way that it needs to be wrangled. And I think most of us don't learn how to wrangle stress. And so we end up with this sort of chronic stress that's very hard to clear in the body. And I find that to be the root cause of hormone imbalance in say 98, 99% of the people that I work with. I would agree with that. Yeah. So cortisol and, you know, the unfortunate part is when you start talking about stress management, like people's eyes glaze over, right? It's, it's like saying you need to stretch more. Stop listening entirely. I'm on my iPhone now. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything else for me? I'm waiting for number two and three. And I think, you know, to me, what is important is to develop what some people call the witness self, like separating from the self-talk and sort of the mental chatter and the way that we get caught up in our modern lives. And, 
and finding a way to actively pause by whatever means possible. So I'm a yoga teacher. Like I had to become a yoga teacher just to wrangle my cortisol and we teach what we need to learn, right? Totally. And it's, you know, that's not the solution for everybody. I have lots of people who will come to see me in my practice and they'll say, I just want to get this off my chest at the beginning. I'm not going to yoga. I hate yoga. It makes me want to shoot myself. Like, don't tell me to go to yoga. And so, you know, those people do better with a guided visualization or, you know, CBT or who knows. Yeah. CBT, vacation yeah. more often, surfing, you yeah. know saunas, hormesis, whatever. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the microbiome, you know, to pay attention to the microbiome because we haven't talked about this yet, but we have offline, but we we're at this place, which I think is really fascinating where you can think of the gut microbiota and their DNA as a separate endocrine organ. Mm -hmm. So it's controlling, modulating your estrogen levels, your testosterone levels. I wasn't reading that article on caffeine and the circadian rhythm. Instead, I was reading an article in Science today about the role of these subcultures within the microbiome and how they affect autoimmunity and lead to a greater predisposition, for instance, in women for autoimmune conditions. And then we so, have the uh, strobilome. Of course, strobilome. uh, And so, you know, what do you do to take care of that? Well, unfortunately, it's not as simple as many of us would like it to be. (laughs) You know, it's, I remember I was reading a book a couple years ago that was positioning certain microbes as like the Homer Simpson microbes that you need to get rid of you know, like the, and then others that you want to populate kind of your ratio of Firmicutes to bacteroides, and it's not quite as simple as that. Like that ended up getting disproven, or at least called into question. But it, it's something that we want to pay attention to. And so, you know, some simple solutions are things like fiber, resistant starch. Some people think taking a supplement like calcium deglucreate can help you with getting rid of the bad estrogens in your body, so that they don't endlessly recycle in your enterohepatic system, like bad karma. And then the third thing like that, that I would say, <laughs> the third thing I would say is humor. Mm-hmm. How's that? I yeah, think perfect. Humor is like essential to um, like this topic of hormone imbalance. My husband, you know, I've been with him a long time and he's a businessman. He's just like, why did you specialize in hormone imbalance? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's tough. It's complex and it's, it brings up a lot of stuff. It's not a walk in the park and... And so I think humor is kind of a great way to manage it and to have as much fun as possible when you're talking about the complex biochemistry and to, you know, sort of draw parallels and see patterns and, and have some fun with it. That's great. I think those are three really, you know, powerful and long, far reaching things that people can focus on because each, each of those things will not only affect hormone balance, but pretty much every other aspect of health. So the other thing I would like to recommend is go out and pick up a copy of The Hormone Cure. If this is something you're really serious about and you're, you are suffering from hormone issues, it's the best resource that I know of 
for helping you to figure this out if you don't especially if you don't have a skilled practitioner to work with i have a copy of it sitting on my shelf and so do apparently about a hundred thousand other people i i I hear you're approaching a really fabulous milestone in in Mm -hmm. the number of copies you've you've sold so i want to congratulate you on that that's quite an accomplishment and well deserved because i'm that's a hundred thousand people that you've really helped with that with with this message. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. We can definitely make the world a better place if we reset these hormones. So, I mean, I I, I kind of spilled the beans a little bit earlier on what you're working on or what you're interested in now. But what, maybe you can tell us in your, in your own words what this next book that you've got cooking is is about, and and what other things you're working on or interested in. Sure. My next book is about DNA and how to leverage epigenetics. You know, that this aging process, hormone imbalance, the challenges that we're facing, many of them present these opportunities to change your epigenetic influence. And it's kind of a complicated topic. You know, my agent says to me, how do you get people to care about their DNA? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that feels like a really interesting challenge. Like, how do you really make this feel relevant and part of someone's daily life and not like, okay, I'm only 40. Why should I care about, you know, having a longer health span when I'm 80 or 90 or 100? But the truth is you got to address it now. Like, yeah. you know, the problems in the gut, as you well know, uh, the issues with accelerated aging, they start in middle age. They start 35 to 55. And so that's what my next book is about. It's it's super yummy. And of course, it's got proven solutions from the wisdom traditions like Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and, and how to modulate your exposome with, with simple daily actions, you know, like mm-hmm. how you floss which, mm-hmm. by the way, no one does correctly. Right. <laughs> I've learned to taking a sauna. Like, I, I am a total convert now to taking a sauna. It's amazing how it turns on your longevity genes, your FOXO3, super exciting data, just published in JAMA about it. Yeah, we've we got an infrared sauna a while back, as you know, and it's uh, spent a lot of time in there. It's so great. It's totally great. And then a side project has been starting to wrap my head around mold and biotoxins and oh my gosh that's like a that's a big project absolutely absolutely so i'm so glad we finally made this work i'm surprised it took us so long but better late than never and really grateful to have you on the show i think it's going to help a lot of people and i would love to have you back sometime thank you chris such a pleasure to be here thanks everybody That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. 
Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.